0: My name is Dean Smith and I'm the chapel coordinator here at Geneva and I'm happy to welcome you on the behalf of the College of Administration to uh, this evening's undergraduate baccalaureate service. Here at Geneva we believe that all of life is lived under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that his call upon our lives extends to education as well as vocation, but it is also appropriate to begin the undergraduate commencement time with a worship service. Tomorrow, we will celebrate God's grace and the accomplishment of our graduates. But this evening, we have one last opportunity to worship together as administration, faculty, staff, students, parents, and friends. As most of you are aware, this year's commencement activities have the cloud of the death of Geneva freshman, Devin Meyer, who's been missing since January and whose body was discovered yesterday. We lift his family and his friends up at this time. In many ways, commencement is a celebration of families, including the Geneva family. And so I want to explain a little bit about who the participants are this evening. Reverend Daniel Keel, pastor of the Meadowcroft Presbyterian Church, is a 1983 graduate of Geneva. He has served churches in Western Pennsylvania, Kansas, and the Philadelphia area. I had the privilege of marrying Dan and his wife, Suzanne, in 1983. Their daughter, Leah, a communications major, is a member of the graduating class. And younger sister, Bethany, is a sophomore student ministry major. Dr. Calvin Traup, a member of the Board of Trustees, is also a 1983 graduate of Geneva. His wife, Amy, is first cousin to Dan Keel's wife, Suzanne. The Traup's daughter, Laura, an English major, is a member of this year's graduating class. She was preceded by older sister Rebecca, and she is followed by younger sister Miriam, a freshman English major. Reverend Bruce Backenstow, also a member of Geneva's Board of Trustees, did not graduate in 1983. His wife is not related to Amy Trout and Suzanne Keel, and he does not have a daughter graduating this year. But Reverend Backenstow is a local pastor who's ministered to Geneva students for a number of years, and he's been a member of the Board of Trustees for some time. Dr. Robert Copeland, the usual director of the Genevans, is recovering from foot surgery and is under a doctor's strict orders to stay off his feet. So we are grateful for the leadership of Professor Don Kephart and the musical leadership of the Genevans. And you will note at the end of the program that senior music major Lindsay Brothers will direct the closing benediction response. We'll wait upon the Genevans now for our call to worship.
1: Please stand together, if you're able, as we look to the Lord together in prayer. O oh Lord, our Lord, and all the earth, how excellent is your name. We exalt you, O oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We praise you that we may come into your presence because of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for what he has done to secure that access through his shed blood. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for moving in our lives to draw us into a saving relationship with the Father and the Son and yourself. And we pray that as we take our time this evening to worship you, that you would be pleased to bless our assembly with your presence in a special way. Thank you for each graduate who is here and for your grace in their life that has brought them to this point. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: If you will turn to Psalm 8 in your program. Some three years and four months ago, The majority of our graduates filed into Matheny Fieldhouse for an opening academic convocation. As they will do tomorrow, they marched between the members of the faculty, sort of an admission to the academic community. Tomorrow they will process in between the faculty as the first step in their departure from the academic community. At that opening academic convocation some four years ago, Psalm 8 was sung. It describes God as one whose name is excellent throughout the earth, whose glory covers the heavens. There's a reminder of other psalms in which the worship of the heavenly host is joined by the worship from the earth, by great and small, old and young, including the infants. As the psalmist looks at the skies and the heavenly beings with all of their order, in contrast, he looks at man. One paraphrase puts it this way, I look up at your macro skies, dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their settings, and then I look at my micro self and wonder, what is man? And the answer of the scriptures is, not a cosmic blob, but a being created a little lower than God, but in the image of God, placed to both rule and serve the creation, And our hope is that the academic journey of our students helps them understand God, man, and the creation and their appropriate relationships. What was intended by God in the creation, what now is because of sin, what can be as a result of the redemptive and restorative work of Jesus Christ, and what will be when Christ returns to raise his people and restore the cosmos. Please join in the singing of Psalm 8.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Lord our Lord, Lord, Lord.
3: time to pray. And one of the blessings of being at Geneva College is that we can pray here institutionally and personally. When we pray, I hope that one of the things that you will take from Geneva if you have nowhere else to take it from is that prayer is a grace and we receive grace from God when we pray and as we pray and you will need to pray just as much when you leave this place as you've had to when you've been here. This is a prayer for the graduates, so I'd like to ask the graduates to stand and do the work and service of prayer with me. Would you please stand, just the graduates? And let's go together in Christ before God's throne of grace as he joins us here. Pray with me, please. O Heavenly Father, You are the great and glorious God, the Maker of all that is. And You are great in Your works and in Your glory. And You have made us for Yourself. And you have called us clearly through our Lord Jesus Christ to yourself as your creatures. Help us, Lord, to hear your call, to hear your wonderful and terrible voice as you call to us as sinners through Christ to come to you in him. O oh Lord, our great creator and redeemer, we come to you only through the blood of our risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ with grateful hearts. Yet Lord, you know our hearts, and you know that for many in this room our hearts are broken, and we're in distress. Because death is too burdensome for us. Lord, we have called upon your name concerning Devin Minor. And according to your grace, we now ask that you would help us in our pain and our distress. But Lord, more than us, we pray for Devin's family. That you would sustain them in a dark hour. That your grace would be sufficient for them. That they might know your comfort and the comfort of your people. And that you might work in their lives to restore what has been broken and to reclaim them from despair. We pray, Lord, that they might find hope even now in you. And Lord, we pray for our hearts. We pray for the hearts of the graduates here, that you would make them soft hearts, that you would soften us so that we could hear you, and that we could hear others. That our lives, hidden in Christ, might be able to follow according to your paths. Lord, we pray for our households, the households you have put us in, and the households you will build and have built in these graduates. We pray, Lord, that you will use them to build households of faith, families and churches that will be faithful to you and your, wor- your word and your spirit in service throughout the world. Lord, we pray that you would enlarge our hearts. We pray also that you would enlarge our homes, that they might be places of hospitality and warmth and Christian love. And we also pray that you would bless these graduates in their work. We pray that you would bless them in their life's work, in the callings that you are calling them into, some of them clearly even now, some less clear. But Lord, make us useful for you, we pray and build your church and your kingdom. May we know your grace, and may we know your love, and may these graduates learn more and more to love you with all their hearts, and all their minds, and all their souls, and all their strength, and to love their neighbors, and co-workers and the other people that you bring into their lives. Oh Lord, we pray that you would confirm the work of their hands for your glory. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
4: Good evening, I would like to direct your attention this morning to 1st John chapter 2. 1st John chapter 2. And I'll be reading verses 12 through 14. Please give your careful attention to God's word. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. In John Bunyan's classic Christian book called Pilgrim's Progress, you know that book, you should know it. It's an allegory which represents the Christian life as a difficult and dangerous journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. The main character, of course, in this allegory is called Christian. And at one point during their journey, Christian and his companion, Hopeful, find that the path that they've been asked to travel upon has become very, very difficult. They become weary and discouraged. But at that point, Christian notices that across the fence, in the, in the pleasant meadow, there is a path that goes parallel to the path that they're on, and it looks like a much easier path. And so he prevails upon Hopeful to climb the fence with him and take the path through the pleasant meadow. If you know the story, they eventually get lost on that path. And the rains come down and the flood waters rise, and they almost perish in the flood. But in that point of desperation, they are found by Giant Despair. And Giant Despair takes them captive, carries them off to his castle, which is called Doubting Castle, and he takes them to the lower regions of the castle and casts them into a dark pit, dungeon. He keeps Christian and hopeful there for days with no light, no food, no water. Eventually, giant despair returns and beats them to a pulp and leaves them in their wounds. Eventually, giant despair comes back and tries to convince Christian and hopeful that there is no hope for them their only way out of this is to kill themselves. And then he leaves them again. At that point, Christian and Hopeful are so discouraged that they contemplate taking up giant despair on his offer. But instead, they decide to spend the whole night in prayer. And the next morning, Christian awakes and suddenly he shouts What a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will I am persuaded open any lock in Doubting Castle. And so he pulls the key out of his pocket, walks over to the door of the dungeon, opens it with the key, walks to the next door in the in the castle, opens it, walks out into the courtyard, out to the main gate, sticks his key in the lock, opens it, and he and hopeful escape. That is anticlimactic. I don't know about you, but I remember the first time I read that story. You just the tension that builds as they go through the beatings and the discouragement, and it reaches a crisis point. And at that crisis point. He pulls out a key from his pocket and opens the door and walks out. I'm sorry, that screenplay will never sell in Hollywood. I mean, could you imagine Jack Bauer in that situation? No calls to Chloe, no tricking of the guard, no high-tech gadget hidden in his belt, no military airstrike. He just says, oh, I just remembered I have a key. I think I'll open the door and walk out. You see, that's the genius of Bunyan's story. He wants us to be shocked by the simplicity of their deliverance. He wants us to be shocked by that. Doubt and despair can certainly imprison and oppress us, even as believers, especially when we go astray but it's through embracing the key of promise. It's not through ingenuity. It's not through greater effort. It's not through outside help. It's through embracing the key of promise that we can always be released. Graduates, tomorrow is a day for you to focus on all of the wonderful possibilities that lie before you in your life all the exciting successes, potential successes that might be in store for you. But tonight, I'd like to take just a few moments to prepare you for the disappointments, to prepare you for the conflicts, to prepare you for the trials, to prepare you for the sufferings. Because neither I nor anyone else can guarantee you that you're going to have any successes in this fallen world but I can definitely guarantee you that you will face trials and sufferings and conflicts. You may have wondered why I would choose a passage like this, and I remember the first time I looked at this passage, I really wrestled to understand it. The first thing that jumped out at me about this, these verses was the repetition. Matter of fact, in three verses... The Apostle John says six times, I am writing to you, I am writing to you, I am writing to you. If you knew anything about Jewish literature, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that that's how the Jews get your attention. They repeat. In English, we underline, we italicize, or if we're texting somebody, we'll write in all caps if we really want to shout at them. But in Jewish literature, you repeat to get somebody's attention. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, when he wanted to really get his disciples' attention. Or the prophet Isaiah said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the Apostle John's way of grabbing his listeners by the shoulders and saying, listen, this is really important. But the repetition serves another purpose. You'll notice if you're looking at it in an English translation, most translations put it in a poetic form. And John may very well have written it that way so that it would be easily rememberable, so that you could remember it and put it in your heart. As the psalmist says, hide God's word in your heart. In other words, so that you can put the key of promise in in your pocket so that when you find yourself in that dungeon, dungeon of despair and frustration you will have it. You see the whole book of First John is about encouragement. If you know anything about the letter you know that the key verse is found in chapter 5 verse 13 where he says I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life so that you may know that you have eternal life. We are meant to live our lives in this fallen world with assurance of our salvation, being sure what will happen to us if we were to die today, being confident that we are in the Lord's hands. This is written to believers. Believers who are living in a very difficult world, living as sinners in a fallen world, full of conflict and trials and suffering. John addresses, it sounds like John addresses three groups of people here. First of all, little children, and then fathers, and then young men. I don't think it's really three groups. I think it's one group. He addresses little children. When he talks to little children, he's talking to all true believers because that's the way he addresses them all through this letter. Let me give you just a couple of examples. In verse 28 of chapter 2, he says, And now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence. Or over in chapter 3, verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. You get the idea. There are actually seven times in this letter that he addresses true believers in Jesus Christ as little children. It's a, an endearing uh, address. My dear ones, my little children. But then he, in these poetic verses, he makes reference to fathers and young men. And I won't give you all the details of how I arrived at this conclusion, but my conviction is that the fathers refers to experienced, mature believers, and young men refers to less experienced, less mature believers. And we'll see why as we go through. The other question is, why does he speak only to men? Why to fathers and young men, not mothers and young women? Well, it's possible that he's thinking primarily of the leaders in the churches, but I don't think so. I think it's much more likely that the fathers represent all mature believers, male and female, and all in young men refers to all inexperienced believers, both male and female. You see, John didn't write in a society that was highly sensitized to feminism like ours. When he said men, people understood that many times, he's referring to all, both men and women. used to be when I would preach, when I would say all men are sinners, I didn't have to worry that some in the congregation would think that maybe women aren't. But when John says fathers and young men, he's understood, he's referring to Experienced believers and less experienced believers. So let's look at the promise he gives to each group. First of all, the promise, the key of promise that he gives to all believers. He says in verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I can't give anyone a greater promise than that. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. That is our greatest need in life. When I talk to people in the counseling field, the psychological field, those who have a biblical perspective, they will say that the inability to give forgiveness and the inability to receive forgiveness are two of the main causes of psychological problems, emotional problems. The inability to give forgiveness or the inability to receive forgiveness. And make no mistake about it we are all psychologically damaged we are all somewhere on the scale between a demon and Jesus Christ we are all in need of psychological healing and restoration and so John says here stick this key in your pocket if you are in Christ if he is your Lord and Savior your sins are forgiven. Notice the basis he gives for that forgiveness. He says, for his name's sake. Forgiveness is only in the name of Jesus Christ. In scripture, when it says name, we don't think too much of our names, but in scripture, when it talks about a name, that name, especially when you're talking about God, represents everything that he is, everything that he's done. I've said it before that really, scripture is the name of God, because this is God's full revelation of who he is and what he has done. And so our salvation is in the name of Jesus Christ. Not in our name, but it's in him, who he is, and what he has done for us. John referred to that actually back at the beginning of chapter 2, just a few verses earlier, where he says in verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin." But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's three names given to Jesus Christ right there. He is our advocate, he is Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is our propitiation. The name of Jesus Christ is everything that scripture reveals him to be. He is fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus Christ is perfect in righteousness. Jesus Christ has died in our place as a substitute. And the word propitiation, if you don't know what the word propitiation means tonight, I encourage you to make it a lifelong study to know deeply the meaning of propitiation. Because when John says that Jesus is our propitiation, the core of that meaning is that he, as he hung on the cross, absorbed the wrath of God that our sins deserved. He absorbed it. He took it upon himself. He bore our sins as he hung there on the cross. He shed his blood as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And God raised him from the dead, bodily. And he ascended into heaven. And he is now seated on the throne at the right hand of God as the Lord of all. That's the name of Jesus Christ. That is who he is. That is what he has done for you if you have put your faith in him. Don't make the same mistake I made. When I was in college... I thought that the gospel, those things that I just rehearsed for you, I thought that those things were the ABCs of the Christian faith. Once I grasped them, once I understood them, I could move on to the deeper things, the more important things. It wasn't until much later I began to understand that the gospel is what my life is about. The gospel is the foundation of my life. The gospel is my hope. It is my guide. It is the basis of every decision I make in life. And that gospel, I look at you with hope, as the believers of the new generation, because that gospel is under attack today like it's never been under attack before in my life. The gospel of the apostles, the gospel of the ancient councils, the gospel of the reformers is being attacked not even most dangerously from outside the church, but from within. I encourage you, I implore you to make the gospel the central study of your life. The second time in verse 13 that John addresses all believers, he says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. He says, Your sins are forgiven because of who Jesus Christ is and because of what he has done. And because of that, you know the Father. You know the one true creator God who spoke all things into existence. The God of providence who guides and directs all things according to his perfect will. You know that God. You know that you know him because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Faith in Christ brings forgiveness and brings reconciliation. You see, that's what you need for daily encouragement. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite authors, preachers, wrote a book that I recommend all the time in pastoral ministry. It's called Spiritual Depression. And I remember the first time I saw the name of the book, I thought, well, there's another Christian pop psychology book. Then I sat down to read it. Didn't know Martin Lloyd-Jones at the time. I wouldn't have come to that conclusion probably so quickly. But when I read the book, I realized that it's just a series of expositions of scripture that dig deeply into the meaning of the gospel and the impact of the gospel in the lives of sinners like you and me. He says in that book, the ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. The ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. So you see what I say when the Apostle John says to you, all Christians, my dear children, your sins are forgiven, and you know the Father. Stick that key in your pocket. Secondly, he addresses the experienced believers, the fathers. In verse 13, he says, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And then he repeats it again, word for word, in verse 14. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now that's the same basic promise that he gives to all believers, but he adds something to it, something that fathers and mothers in the faith, those that are more experienced in walking by faith in Jesus Christ, something they have that less experienced believers don't have. He says, you know him who is from the beginning. To know who he's talking about, you need to go back to chapter 1, the first two verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Jesus Christ, the one who Paul, or who who John and the other apostles touched, heard, saw, and proclaims to all of us. He who is from the beginning, he's pointing to his eternality. Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think that what John is, is pointing us to here is that those who are more experienced, more mature in their faith in Jesus Christ have seen the faithfulness of God play out over time. He's eternal, and they have an eternal perspective. Scripture teaches us to honor the elders, those whose depth and wisdom and faithfulness and stability has come from walking by faith in Christ over a long period of time. Battle-tested faith faith that has come through many trials. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 31 says, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Struck by that verse because in our culture, we work hard to cover up our gray hair. Because in our culture, it's a sign of shame. It's a sign of irrelevance. But scripture says it's a crown of glory. Because as you walk by faith, in Christ as he proves himself over and over and over to you again you begin to see that he is not just lord of the moment but he's the lord of the ages and he's the same yesterday today and forever experiences produces a wise and stable faith a faith that has less peaks and valleys like a young believer we need to understand that Christ is the same in every generation. As the psalmist says in Psalm 37, verse 25, I have been young, and now I am old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Our culture, and because of, of the truth of it in our culture, it's also true in the church, we both suffer from generational myopia, nearsightedness. We can't see beyond our own generation. And the church needs to become countercultural. We need, to, as we live at a time when the youth is worshipped and age is seen as irrelevant, we need to embrace those who have progressed farther in the faith than we have, those who have been through more battles than we have been in. We need the company and the counsel of spiritual fathers and mothers. It's a great privilege for me to come and speak tonight because as asked by Dean Smith. Dean Smith was one of my mentors in the faith. When I came to Geneva, I knew nothing but the basic gospel. I was a brand new believer. And the professors here taught me a lot. But Dean was my pastor. And I learned so much from him. I'm so thankful to be able to give testimony to that now. But, you know, I think about you as you leave college and you begin to live as fully independent adults you know your campus fellowship is now over and the church must now become central to your lives i encourage you to find a good gospel-centered christ-centered bible preaching church but make sure that it's one that is cross-generational multi-generational And find those who are wise and experienced in the faith to help you get established in adulthood. I don't know where you're going to be serving, where God may be calling you to serve as believers, but I would encourage you to do some research and find a church like that even before you settle. I've served as 18 years in my current pastorate, and only on one occasion have I had somebody who was contemplating moving to the area, call me and ask me detailed questions about the church because they wanted to find a good church home before they moved into the area. I've always been so struck by that because that family has become probably the most important family, the core family in my church. But their commitment was in the right place. Make the church the center of your life. And I remember what it's like to be a college student. Church was not high on my priority list. But things are going to change now. And life is going to get hard. And you need a good church family around you, with you. It's one way the Lord keeps you strong in the keys of promise. Third and finally, uh, John addresses less mature believers. The young men, he says... Verse 13, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Addressing less experienced believers and saying, You have overcome. I wondered why would John do that? And I can't help but think of this in terms of military language. He's talking to those that are privates in the army. Those that are put up on the front lines of the spiritual warfare going on. The ones with all the enthusiasm, the ones with all the energy, but the ones that may be lacking in experience and wisdom. And I think of the young men and young women who are true believers in the Church of Jesus Christ. In many ways, that's where you are. You're on the front lines. You're fighting the battles, the battles against pride, the battles against materialism, the battles against pornography, the battles against whatever sin you're battling with. You're on the front lines. You're learning. You're falling on your face. You're learning what it means to get up by God's grace and fight again. And when I think of the young men and the young women of faith in that regard, I understand why John says... With this key of promise in your pocket. You have overcome. You have overcome. It's accomplished. It is finished. It is done. You are going to lose many battles in the spiritual warfare that you go out to face. But the war is already won at the cross. The head of the serpent is crushed. We are no longer his slaves. when you are in that dungeon of doubting castle and giant despair is beating you up, that key of promise is there if you have Christ. You have already overcome. In verse 14, John points to the means by which we have overcome Satan. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You are strong, and the word of God abides in you. We gain strength in our battles with the world, the flesh, and the devil by allowing the word of God to abide in us. That's a very common phrase in John's first epistle. Allow the word of God to abide in us, and there's a wonderful promise that comes from allowing that to happen. At the end of chapter 2 and verse 24, He says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. He ties having the power and the presence of Jesus Christ in your life with allowing the word of God to abide in you. And then in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We win not by might, not by power, but by abiding in the Word. And when we abide in the Word, the Spirit is with us, and we walk in strength. Your life, from this point on, is going to be hard. I guarantee it. And you will, from time to time, find yourself in a time of doubt and despair, John's keys of promise to you tonight are that if you are in Christ, if you have entrusted your life to him as your risen Lord and Savior, then you are forgiven. And you know the eternally faithful God. And you have already overcome the evil one. A week or so ago, my daughter called me and asked me, Dad, what are you going to be preaching on at the baccalaureate service? I shared with her some of my thoughts of where I was at the moment. And she said, Dad, that sounds good, but just whatever you do, don't preach on a biblical worldview.
2: <laughs> said,
4: Those of us that have been at Geneva for four years were tired of hearing about a biblical worldview. And I said, don't worry, that's not my main point. But as I thought about that conversation over the last week or so, I thought, you know, like I said, I came to Geneva a long time ago as a brand new, very green believer. All I knew was Jesus. I had Jesus in my life, but I didn't know much about what that meant. And Geneva College taught me my biblical worldview. And it may seem like an academic exercise to you now, but every decision I have made from that point on has been based on my biblical worldview. Every day I make hundreds of decisions. And every one of those decisions is determined by the foundation of that worldview. And the foundation of that worldview is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember those hours of sitting in Bible 101 as a freshman and Dr. McMillan taught me covenant theology. And the covenant theology is based on the promise where God says to his people, I will be your God, you will be my people, and all of scripture is showing how he made that happen through his son and through the cross and the resurrection. The gospel is the key of the promise. You have it in your pocket if you have committed your life to Christ, don't ever forget that no matter how hard life gets, you are forgiven, you know him who is eternal and faithful, and you have already overcome in him. Let me pray. Father, I don't know where anyone in this room is tonight but, but myself. And I'm sure we're all over the spectrum between living in victory and joy to living in frustration and hopelessness and despair. Lord, I pray that no one would leave this place tonight without the key of promise in their pocket. Show us Christ. Draw us to him. Enable us to find life, peace, peace Purpose and fulfillment in Him alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Thank you for a wonderful exposition of that passage. If you'll turn to the back of your program, you'll find Psalm 84 selection that we have there is the second part of the psalm. Uh, In light of what was being said about Pilgrim's Progress, Psalm 84, as a matter of fact, is a Pilgrim psalm, uh, sung by the Israelites on their way up to Jerusalem. Uh, And they begin with thinking about how great it will be when they get there and to see the Temple and the Pilgrim's Delight as he's looking forward. But as a matter of fact, even in that psalm, the journey is not without difficulty, The section that we begin, though, says advancing still from strength to strength. So the journey goes from strength to strength. The difficult times do not overcome. The pilgrims will arrive in Zion. They will stand before the face of God. Now I think the the journey is in many ways a metaphor. Uh, Certainly it's the real experience of the Israelites going up, but it's also a metaphor for the Christian life, Uh, In some ways, you can apply it academically. Your academic life has been a journey, sometimes with difficulties. Um, Tomorrow, you don't get to see the face of God. You do get to see the face of Ken Smith, at least. But we also can see that there's a spiritual journey in here as well. And our hope that the spiritual journey, the journey of life, and the academic journey uh, come together for you. In the Psalms, Jesus is referred to as both shield and God's anointed. So you note uh, in stanza five, the second stanza in your program, Oh, look, O God, upon our shield, the face of your anointed view. So it's really a psalm about the king, uh, but it's kind of a very interesting sort of metaphor. And I've wondered at points if there isn't a battle motif here. Illustrated by Narnia. Illustrated by an army of Aslan. That as they go into battle, what is the face that is upon their shield but Aslan's face? For Aslan and for Narnia. And I wonder if there isn't at least some implication here that there's a battle taking place and the cry to God is, look down and look at our shields and see whose face is on it. We are the ones that are crying out for your deliverance and we cry out for your deliverance Because our shield is your son, and there's great triumph. And God grants victory, and God grants his presence. And as we trust in Christ, he is indeed our shield and son. And you note the the psalm closes by saying he gives grace and glory, withholds no good, but gives blessing now and forever to those who trust in him. Please stand as we join in the singing of Psalm 84.
2: mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: that program